It's Tuesday, May 18th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Asit Sharma, back in the house. Good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. Always happy to be here on Market Foolery. We've got Warren Buffett and his team doing a little buying and selling. We have another acquisition in the tech world, but we are going to start with some earnings and no bigger company to start with than Walmart. First quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. They raised guidance for the full fiscal year. Same store sales in the U.S. were up 6%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you think about this quarter a year ago, that was when people were doing all kinds of hoarding. So, um, uh, this was a great quarter for Walmart, and the stock up uh, 2-3% this morning. This was a strong quarter. Every segment performed well. Actually, I'm quoting from Doug McBillan, the CEO. That's that was his lead statement in his in his commentary today. But it was a strong quarter. I was going to say he's Chris, not wrong. He's not wrong. Every segment did perform well. Uh, they had revenue increase about 2.7 percent, which for Walmart, when <coughs> your revenue is 138 billion, and you're just trying to grab a percent or two on the bottom line, which will translate into huge dollars. That's not bad. Um, this 6%, so these are US quarter one comparable sales, so year over sales versus um, last year. Chris, you're right. I mean, they're impressive because who would have thought after just the phenomenal year that Walmart, along with other major retailers, enjoyed during the pandemic? Not that we're quite out of it yet, but we're getting there. Who would have thought that they would have such strong comp sales in the U.S., which is their major market? Um, I wanted to pick this number part a little bit, though, not to not to criticize it, but just to figure out what's going on here. So I'm reading from their segment results, and out of this six percent rise, they had a decrease of three point two percent in transactions, but average ticket, so the average spend jumped 9.5% over the fiscal first quarter of uh, fiscal 2021. This is actually fiscal year 2022. That was up 16.5%. So there's something in here. I'm going to take a wild guess that if transactions are declining, um, people still aren't headed into the stores. And because that average ticket is getting bigger. I'm wondering if they're not going to ha- truly have a drop-off now in a few quarters, because this says stimulus money to me. This says people are still spending stimulus, which we know they were um, over the last few months. But any any thoughts on that one, Chris? I mean, I think stimulus is part of any equation when we're talking about major general retailers like Walmart. But one of the things they did talk about was sort of their their bigger ticket items, um, that they sell, um, selling more of those, that obviously helps boost the average ticket price. Um, but also, those are products that have higher margin. So, I, 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 you know, it's going to be interesting to see where Walmart is in like six months or nine months. Because I think you're right. The, you know, the stimulus money is going to go away at some point. But uh, on the flip side, they could see a sizable increase in traffic. So you know we could we could be sitting here six nine months from now, talking about similar numbers in terms of comps, and what's driving it is traffic, not necessarily average ticket. Uh, that's a great point. I want to say that uh, in the U.S., stay with Walmart U.S. Their biggest segment, operating income was up five point five, uh, up to five point five billion. I'm sorry. So. 
if you look at that great quarter, a year ago quarter from last year, $4.3 billion in operating income, they put $5.5 billion on the book, same period this year. And this, I think, is the result of what you're talking about, selling bigger ticket items um, with that higher margin. But you know, Chris, if they make it up, let's say as we go through this year and they make up some expected decline in this average ticket with that traffic as people start going to the stores, yeah, maybe the operating income declines a little bit, but they will have proven a lot of the sales if they got to be incredibly sticky. And you have to give them points for having set up their business to to flourish during COVID and to um, really boy, attract customers with the, the e-commerce uh, portion. They, I think they've done a fairly decent job of that. I see that was up again in the US. Um, that e-commerce contribution was about 360 basis points to the total of their comp sales. So I think a strong quarter all around, but we should say um, if you're looking for something to just worry about a little bit, Walmart International, those sales were um, down significantly in constant currency. So if we ignore all that you know, crazy stuff with, with currencies fluctuating against each other, they had a drop of about 11.4%. That's still $26.4 billion in sales. It's such a big company. Um, and they, their operating income in constant currency actually increased um, about 41% to $1.1 billion in that segment. So I guess the, the message here with Walmart is that these strengths that the company capitalized on over the last year, I think they are parlaying them into a sort of COVID, if not COVID-free future, let's say a COVID-light future. Impressive. And they're so big. Their footprint is so big around the globe. Um, I love that they have invested in their supply chains and were able to pull this off because not every retailer was um, over the last year. Speaking of impressive, Home Depot's revenue in the first quarter rose 33%. Profits were higher than expected. Global same-store sales for Home Depot were up 31%. And despite all that, the stock is actually down just a little bit at the moment. Um, that, that could be the lack of guidance, um, and we can get into that. Uh, uh, it could also be that shares of Home Depot were hitting an all-time high last week. So this is, this is not one of those... SaaS stocks that has been cut in half over the past three months. True. And I almost want to say that investors still should show Home Depot love. I know it's you know near the all-time high, but these numbers, earnings per share, they hit 3.86 bucks. So $3.86 versus $3.08 that analysts were expecting. Revenue, $37.5 billion versus just under 35 billion. These are pretty outsized um, beats on expectation. I think that Home Depot is another example of investing before the pandemic. They have this one Home Depot uh, philosophy that they are going to really pour money into their supply chain, into the electronic uh, order routing within the stores, into all the customer interfacing. Um, places that they have in store, the, the kiosks. And, and if you shop at Home Depot, I'm sure you've noticed this. Um, this started before COVID. All of these things have served the company really well. But we should say that part of this, too, is this huge, huge tailwind. A little anecdote here. Um, we have a neighbor in my uh, neighborhood, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. So this is a hot housing market. We have uh, a neighbor that 
our two neighbors put their house up for sale <laughs> and they decided not to move. The issue is in some metropolitan areas, even if you want to move because home prices are, are so high, it's hard to rotate into another house. The houses are in short supply. Um, you can't really capitalize on your equity. And then, of course, you know, we talked about this last week, Chris, there's a lumber shortage. So many things falling in Home Depot's favor, but people are stuck at home and they're renovating. And this is endless story of home improvement for the original mass market, do-it-yourself home improvement retailer. What better tailwind could they ask for? Yeah, and uh, it, it, it really does seem like you know, Matt, Matt Argersinger was on Motley Full Money a couple of weeks ago, and uh, to paraphrase what he said about housing, which is, you know, there are there are a lot of markets across America that are very hot right now, and he said when you when you step back and look at home builders' ability to build homes profitably as fast as they can, there's there's only so fast they can go. So Maddie's main point was this isn't going to stop anytime soon. And I think that the, one of the businesses this bodes well for is the home improvement business. Um, uh, I think that, you know, as people just sort of look around and say, you know what? Uh, well, yeah, we were hoping to move, but it, we're going to be here a few more years. All right, let's, let's start fixing this up a little bit. Um, I do wonder, though, about the guidance. Because, you know, we're, we're not talking about a small company. And I, I think it is I think it is reasonable to ask the question, if a business like Walmart feels comfortable enough to offer guidance, how come Home Depot doesn't feel that same level of comfort? Yeah, maybe they don't want to, they don't want to jinx things. <laughs> but, it could be. Yeah, so, so not, to, not to be too, too flip, but the companies refrained yeah, from their full-year guidance. I think part of this is just waiting for the other shoe to drop in that when Home Depot looks at its fiscal year projections, it's looking at a few things. They're a very macro-focused company, probably even more than Walmart. They remind me, in fact, of the old conglomerates, the way GE used to look before it gave out its guidance. They're worried about so many macro factors. They're worried about inflation. They look at that and see what is the ability of all these things to come together and affect the consumer. And I think after COVID, now they're probably management's a little worried, well, do we get a perfect storm here? where uh, consumers have the desire to put a pause on home improvement prod projects. You know, they've finished their near-term spending, then inflation is going to hit. Maybe stocks will go down, which creates a, a wealth effect where if you see the market go down, you don't feel like spending on that new deck. So I think there's some conservatism there that's being pushed by what's happening in the greater economy. I was a little surprised though. I mean, they're doing so well. I'm looking at their income statement as we speak, Chris. And just an extremely impressive um, structure here. Their gross profit was $12.7 billion, and they held their fixed expenses pretty steady. So if you just look only at net earnings, they went from four point, from $2.2 billion to $4.1 billion year over year. You would think with that kind of confidence and the types of cash flow they're generating, they'd go ahead and take a risk. Well, we're not sure. These are projections, you know, and, and not worry about missing them. So I, I'm too surprised at that. But I think we'll see a reversion to the norm next quarter. I think they'll come out and, and give some kind of forecast. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, I'll come back next quarter and we can chat about them. 
Shares of Twilio up nearly 3% this morning after the cloud computing company bought Zipwhip, which is a business text messaging company. And Twilio paid $850 million in cash and stock. Um, I, I'm, I'm not in the business of uh, making market calls. <laughs> Anyone who's been listening for a while knows that. But I do wonder, Asit, look, shares of Twilio earlier this year were at $450 a share. They've been cut by about a third. And they came out last week with their first quarter report, had really good numbers. Um, they just spent nearly a billion dollars to buy this text messaging company. And the stock is up. And I, I look at those two data points and I wonder, should people who have had Twilio on their watch list stop waiting for the stock to drop further? Because it really does seem like, I mean, I, I, I know this is a, a, a strong growing company, but you know, 850 million is still 850 million. Um, it, it seems like at, at a minimum, Wall Street likes this deal. Yeah, I think Wall Street is impressed by this deal and it reinforces something that if you've been following Tulio, you're, you're already familiar with. They're not, they, they themselves are not going to wait for their uh, stock to drop. So, just a few months ago, really last year, they had an all-stock deal in which they made a massive acquisition and acquired a company called SendGrid, which works with email APIs. Um, it's part of the same tack of technology that Twilio offers, which basically in a nutshell is helping you communicate with your customers through various channels in much better ways than you've been able to do so um, before buying their services. Now, the thing about this acquisition, sort of following the same mode, they're still using their stock. It's half stock, half cash. So between these two deals, um, you have several billion bucks worth of acquisitions, and they're re they've only put down 400-odd million in cash between these two deals. In the meanwhile, their own organic sales are growing at these huge double-digit rates. Both acquisitions will be accretive to the bottom line uh, within a uh, you know, very near, near t time frame. So I think that, yeah, if you're waiting for um, Twilio to come to some type of uh, trough where, where you feel more comfortable buying it, maybe look at the long-term future more and, I don't know, dollar cost average in, if you like this company, I think it's a, it's a very strong company. And I just like the way that management could have followed a model more like Salesforce and just been a serial acquirer. There are a lot of companies, smaller companies, to buy in this space, but they're so focused on their own products. Anything else they have been doing in the marketplace in terms of M&A has been gravy. And as I say, they've been doing it with stock. <laughs> so that's a, if your stock has gone up 60% in a year and you're suddenly f seeing your market capitalization at $60 billion or $70 billion, it's okay to use some of that stock to buy other companies. In fact, I would do the same thing um, if I was steering the wheel there. So, a lot to like um, with this company. Risks as ever. It's a competitive space, but point well taken, Chris. I mean, just dollar cost average in. Berkshire Hathaway made some changes to its investment portfolio in the first quarter, as it tends to do. Um, let me hit you with a few of the highlights. You tell me what stands out to me. They, Berkshire Hathaway added 17 million shares of Kroger, more than 12 million shares of Verizon. Um, they took a stake in a British insurance company called Aon. Uh, they sold 
half the stake that they had in Chevron and most of the stake they had, remaining stake they had in Wells Fargo. Um, there were others. Those, those were the ones that, that sort of leapt out at me. What stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, those were um, very interesting. I mean, just a couple of comments on them. Yeah, Chevron, what were you waiting for? Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, the Aon Investments, I think, um, it's, it's good. I mean, it's in their alley. It's an insurance company, a successful insurance company. Getting rid of that Wells Fargo stake is also long overdue. I put that in the Chevron category. It's like, why? Um, I, and I think, too, some of the things that stood out to me were um, cutting some of the stakes that they had taken very recently. So the company um, had invested in AbbVie. I think last year they've they've already cut that stake by ten percent. Going back to another one you mentioned, though, Chris Kroger is so interesting because the the way that that acquisition looked, the acquisition of shares. Sorry, I don't want to confuse anyone. They didn't acquire the company; they've just been buying shares. As with all these, um, when that happened, this was early last year. They took their first stakes in Kroger. It looked like one of um, Buffett's lieutenants was probably behind it. Um, but they are starting to nibble more. They like the industry. You know, I myself am skeptical about the grocery industry. I've spent so much time in this space, losing money on uh, stock investments in the grocery space, learning about it. But from a value perspective, when Berkshire Hathaway took their first stake in Kroger, it looked persuasive. I mean, the stock was undervalued at that, that point. And of course, it got a boost from COVID. They like what they're seeing with the investments that Kroger has made in technology um, delivery, ordering online, picking up at store, these types of things. So, you know, they have, as as we were chatting before this, this store, they have to put their marbles in these huge market capitalization companies. There's just no other way for Berkshire Hathaway to move the needle for its returns as it's buying up shares of publicly traded companies. So, what we're seeing here is a little more shifting maybe than we're used to in the fact that Berkshire Hathaway is, is buying and selling some companies just quarters after taking the first stake. Uh, and we can't forget selling out of the airlines last year at probably the worst possible moment. What I like about all of that, though, is it shows um, Buffett's never-ending ability to try to understand the markets, to reinvent himself if he ha- has to. Um, and I think it says a lot about um, the company that they are shifting into some sectors where they see promise and getting out of some that they should have done long ago. I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on holding on to, to companies like Chevron and Wells Fargo that seem like maybe no-brainers to trim those positions years ago? Yeah, the Wells Fargo one always sort of had me scratching my head. And I, I think that Warren Buffett, um, maybe to a very slight detriment, held on to those shares and gave management the benefit of the doubt um, when they really, you know, it's easy to say in hindsight, but they, they really didn't deserve it at all, um, just with all of the, the problems that they had. And to the extent that anyone in the executive suite at Wells Fargo was still hanging on to the unofficial um, motto that this is Warren Buffett's favorite bank, uh, that's over. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard many arguments that not only is this Warren Buffett's favorite bank, but it's trading below book value, which of course now it's, it's bumped up slightly over that. I've heard many arguments of why you should buy Wells, but 
now if they've trimmed what 98% of that position, you can sell it too. And I hate, I hate to be so pejorative about such a big bank, but until management really gets the message um, that they've got to run the company in a clean and efficient manner, I don't see that they'll ever be able to raise that stock price up significantly. They're going to have to demonstrate to the market that they're running that ship with integrity and it's going from the top down through all those layers of managers that always seem to get in the news on a predictable quarterly basis for some hanky-panky, Chris. Well, it, it, it's something we talk about all the time when we, because we get the question all the time, well, should I sell this stock? And one of the reasons to sell a stock is, is the thesis broken? The basic thesis, as I understand it, for many years for Warren Buffett when it came to Wells Fargo was, I'm not interested. Of the big banks, this is the one that does business differently. They're not doing the black box investment banking stuff that I don't completely understand. I'm saying I personally don't understand. Um, And Buffett was saying, look, it's a much, Wells Fargo is much more straightforward um, and, they're they're very straightforward with the way that they do business, and uh, all of the scandals that they've had over the past six years kind of blow that thesis up. Yeah, and and it just shows that no one is perfect. Even Warren Buffett can not just make mistakes about stocks, Chris, but make mistakes about businesses and management teams. So you know, there you have it. But I applaud his ability to keep moving and learning and um, trying to improve his returns by doing rational things like selling uh, shares of a company that just isn't performing anymore. Asa Charmer, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Chris. This was fun. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.